coming up on this week's episode of the Data Ops Podcast. I see data ops as more of an empowerment idea that empowering people to sort of take back control of how they produce uh, insight um, in a way that allows them to have higher job happiness and deliver more results to the, the company. Welcome to the Data Ops Podcast. I'm your host, Sandro Biami. And I'm Victoria Guido. And today we have a very special guest. One could even say, the father of data ops. Ooh. I'll let him introduce himself. Go ahead. Well, thank you. I've actually had someone call me the grandfather of data wow. ops. I'm, I'm, I'm getting younger as it is, so that's, that's good. Yeah, so my name is uh, Chris Berg. I uh, run a company called Data Kitchen. And, um, it, you know, in some ways, I've been working on the ideas behind data ops for 15 years. And so... Uh, We've um, been working to kind of bring these principles of, of Agile and, and DevOps and lean manufacturing from areas that we've worked in. Um, my co-founders and I worked in, worked in data and analytics and worked in software engineering. And, and now I, I grew up in a very manufacturing intensive part of the U.S. and bring some of these ideas of how to improve the people and process and creating analytics um, to, the, to the front and try to educate the, the market and, and sort of provide some thought leadership around it. Oh, that's, that's great. I see you said you came from, a, I guess, a manufacturing background. So a lot of the developers that I've interacted with normally come from like a go fast and break things mentality. So in manufacturing, that's not really the case. So how did that kind of, I guess, mold your opinion of, of making data ops and whatnot? Yeah, well, I'm not, I guess I, I grew up in a very industrial part of the U.S., right, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, you know, when you, um, one of the things that I read in college was this book called The Machine That Changed the World. And it was about how in the 1980s, the Japanese automakers really um, started producing cars that were just better than American cars. And my dad was a telephone man and he worked in a union and he drove his Toyota to his union meetings and all the union guys would give him crap for driving a Japanese car. But my dad said, well, it's cheaper and it's better. Um, and he was right. It's a, it was a cheaper and better car. And so, um, and I think what made it better wasn't the fact that it was made by Japanese, is that they actually adopted a set of ideas about how you actually manufacture things, things better. And there was a guy named Deming who was an American who the Japanese picked up these ideas and started to focus on, well, how can you make a quality product? And if you have a problem, how do you fix it? Um, how do you measure the improvements? How do you um, be able to have what's called just in time and total quality management and all these sets of ideas that actually have been become almost the standard operating procedure uh, around the world and how you run a manufacturing line. And, um, you know, they also have to do, there's an idea of safety culture that um, because you've got this big technically complicated thing that you're working on an assembly line. Um, no one can really see all of it. Um, how do you, if something goes wrong, is the right thing to do to blame an employee or is it probably the manufacturing line itself or the process that the person works in? And, um, you know, when 15 years ago, when I started to work more and more in data and analytics, I had, you know, problems in delivering models and data sets to customers. And my first thought was to blame an employee for the problem, blame someone who worked for me. And that's probably not the right thing to do, um, mainly because it's not true. Most of the problems actually aren't the employee's fault. And, you know, I think Deming says 
4% of the problems are with the system and not the people. Mm -hmm. And so what's, what are the attributes of a good system for people to work in? And I think those ideas are kind of invariant of whether that thing that you're working on is an assembly line or the thing that you're working on is a large complicated software project or that thing that you're working on is, you know, a, 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 a pipeline of data from ingestion to model to visualization. Um, and so how you manage a team, how you think about technology, how you think about work, I think there's the same set of ideas there that, um, and that's sort of what the um, DevOps, data ops, lean ideas are, are all about. Yeah, with DevOps, that became the DevOps manifesto, kind of the, the guidebook to do DevOps right, better software engineering practices. And you also helped come up with the data ops manifesto. So you can talk about how that process came about. Yeah. So, well, to, to be honest, we, you know, we, we started a company and, and we're good capitalists and wanted to make money. And so we had had this experience in managing teams who delivered analytics that, that really wasn't fun. Um, you know, I had a boss who was, a uh, we, we were doing work in healthcare and my co-founders and I were kind of the team that did all the technical work. Um, you know, I was the COO, had a head of data engineering, had a, had a product and, uh, our boss would go off and talk to some buddy in a healthcare company and, and he'd, you know, have a bright idea and we'd figure out how to do it. So we'd sit in a room with a data scientist or an engineer and, you know, do some visualizations, have some data and then go back to him and say, wow, this is, your idea is great. We think we can do it in two weeks. And he'd always look at us and say, you know, Chris, I'm sorry. I thought that should take two hours and not two weeks. Like we had just killed a patient on the table. Um, and then, you know, I was just talking with, um, you know, a head of analytics at a big pharma company today. And, and she and I had that, had the same experience of like, when things are wrong, people will call you up and yell at you. And it's, I'm an introvert. I don't like to get yelled at. Um, and so how do you like really go fast and not break things um, and not have errors, not have low quality, but also be able to change and try things out. And so the speed and ability to do things fast, I think is really important in analytics. And I think in software that actually happened, you know, the, the agile manifesto was in 2001 that we sort of stole some of the ideas from and the world from, which is really about how to, um, you know, how to deliver software faster in a more incremental way and more customer focused uh, way. And so, um, you know, so that sort of happened in 2001. And then about 2009, people said, you know what, just the ideas of how to work on an iterative short cycle time development process weren't enough. You actually needed kind of a technical environment to make it work. And that involves testing and deployment automation and monitoring and a bunch of other things. And so the idea of DevOps took off then and there was um, the first DevOps meetup and, you know, 10 years ago and it's, it's grown to be almost the default way now that you develop software or IT systems. And so that sort of transformation hasn't happened uh, as a whole in data and analytics. A lot of people are um, either, they're either new to the field or they, they um, you know, that they're either sort of fear and heroism ends. You've got bigger organizations who've gotten yelled at by people and don't like making errors and they've wrapped their delivery of analytics in a really slow, cumbersome human process um, to iron out any errors. Um, and then you've got other people who sort of fly by the seat of their pants and, and are, are really working hard and they're kind of being heroes. But then what happens is they end up getting burnt out. And, and so then they, you know, they create something that gets too much to handle and then they 
they leave. And that's sort of why you're seeing a lot of data scientists and chief data officers actually have a, a very short tenure at their companies. And so there's got to be something better than living and going slow and living in fear or kind of waking up on Saturday morning and, and you know, uh, working because you're, you're just trying to be a hero all the time. Yeah, heroism is definitely a big thing. I've heard terms like 10x developer, ninja, like they can do everything. And then when those people leave, like in the single point of failure, so the combating heroism is definitely a big challenge that I've seen here that every place I've worked is always a hero when something breaks. Yeah, yeah. And like, I think it's um, like a lot of things, I think it's a leadership challenge, right? Because you, you, you end up some people want to be heroes because they want to get validation from their work. And as a leader in the company, you want heroism like a few percent of the time because sometimes it's necessary. Uh, you know, customers will ask you to do crazy things and it's important to get it done. But if you're on a regular basis um, being a hero, you're invariably going to um, hurt your people um, and invariably given the job market, they're going to, they're going to leave. And so, I think a more sustainable pace of work is better. And actually, I think it actually promotes innovation. And I think if you think about how you work, you can actually, there are ways that you can kind of, because the goal of heroism is to innovate, to be able to do things fast. Um, and so you can go fast and you can have really high quality deliverables and, and low errors. And that's the sort of um, mindset change that happens when thinking and applying the, the, the data ops idea. And that's sort of why we wrote those 18 points down is saying like, well, what exactly would you have to do to, you know, go fast and, and, and also, um, you know, work with low fear and low heroism, but make your customers really, really happy. Yeah. And uh, do you have an example of where you've taken that manifesto and applied it to a customer and what value should they really get out of, of adopting this mindset? You know, what, what we found is, is customers who really like um, and are amenable to the idea of a data ops transformation, we, we kind of think of them as the squeeze. One is that they, their customers, the people who are wanting to get ideas from analytics, aren't happy. And maybe they're unhappy because the data has been wrong too many times or because they have a whole bunch of follow-up questions that they can't get answered. Um, and on the other hand, they are... A manufacturing line and their raw materials, the input data that they're getting is has lots of problems and they can't get at it or the third time they, they get it, it's in a different format. And so they're squeezed between really demanding customers and data providers who kind of don't care that they exist. Um, and so that squeeze is a good indication that they have some amenability to um, start working in a new way. And also because in some organizations and, and not all, they already have uh, people who sort of look like them and talk like them who work on the IT or software side of the organization. And they perhaps work in an agile way, perhaps start doing DevOps and, and automation to do it. And so um, those three things make it a, a, a ripe condition. And, and the benefits that they, that they get are that they, like I said, they, they can deliver instead of spending sort of weeks or months to deliver 20 lines of SQL or a model into production. They can do it in hours and minutes instead of having sort of on the order of tens or hundreds of errors in the analytics that they deliver, deliver every month that can go down to zero. Um, and then finally the, you know, analytics has this, and I use the term analytics in the broadest sense, data, science, engineering, all those terms um, uh, is, 
really owned not by one part of in big companies, but by lots of people and how they collaborate and coordinate and, and being able to do that better and not get have a lot of Hatfields and McCoy, I think is another benefit that we see. So I'm thinking, so Data Kitchen, you guys have a, a product that customers are using or are you more like servicing, helping people understand their data processing? Yeah, so we, we've been in business for about six years. And so uh, we didn't know what to call what we were going to do. We called it Agile Analytic Operations for a while. We called it DevOps for data science. We go to conferences and give out wooden spoons and wear chef hats and people would look at, look at us like we were aliens from another planet. And, you know, are you an ETL tool? Are you data science tool? Gartner doesn't have a category, still didn't have a category for it. And so, you know, for three or for a couple of years, we were sort of seen as just these sort of odd guys. Um, and in the past couple of years, um, you know, the idea of data ops has gained steam. You know, uh, it's the number of search queries are up 500% in the last two years. Gartner put it on the hype cycle. A bunch of companies are have entered into the space, and you know whether they actually do data ops or not is they, they're starting to use that that term. And so, yeah, we have a software product, um, but in order to make, um, I guess, the real goal of our company uh, is in, is yeah, we want to sell software, but we also really do believe that data ops is a better way to work because we've sort of suffered in that lack of it. So that's why we wrote a manifesto. That's why we wrote a book that we giveaway for free that talks about these principles. And yeah, we think it's cool if you use our software to do these principles, or if you want to just start doing them without our software, that's great as well. Um, but I think it's just, um, I think in, from my standpoint, the adoption of data ops principles is inevitable in data and analytics. And whether you're doing a data science model or whether you're doing a visualization or whether you're even creating a data catalog or integrating data, following these principles is just a better, happier, <laughs> faster, more successful way to work. And uh, the alternative is, is um, I I've lived with and it just sucks. And I just don't want, you know, I I'd, like to, um, I'd like to improve the world. And I think it, a very small way to improve the world is to have uh, my, some of my fellow data nerds adopt these principles. Yeah, I love that. And, and kind of to your point earlier about it only takes a couple of like major, very public incidents about the data being incorrect um, for a demanding customer that can lead an organization to adopting data ops and those principles. And adding on to, you know, what software is right. What about uh, open source contributions? Is Data Kitchen really into that? What percentage of your tools are like that? Yeah, we're, we, we have some open source tools, but um you know, we're a, we're, we've chosen a different path to build the company, so we don't have any outside investors. And one of the reasons we do that is because we see the adoption of data ops as, as a pretty long-term thing. So we've sort of open sourced the, the concepts of data ops, but we have closed source software with a little bit uh, on the end because it's sort of hard to pay developers, um, you know, on, on free software. Um, but yeah, we, we actually use quite a bit of open source software in our in our in uh, our term, in our in our product, and yeah, I think you know, for us, we're, we feel like at least I feel like we're so early in the um, in the game that uh, of trying to make data ops happen that it's been we spend a lot of time educating people on the ideas and and sort of uh, talking at conferences, sharing and and promoting the idea. And I'm I'm still very you know very surprised and pleased that you know if you Google data ops, the sort of top four things are sort of work you know, work that we created and we're helping to define what it is and how, how do you really apply 
agile and DevOps and lean to, to data and analytics. And what does that mean? And how do I do that? How can I be more iterative? How can I make my customers more successful? And I think those are the kind of things we want people to, to, to learn uh, from the stuff that we've written. And, you know, if they want to do it better, sort of buy some of our software. Yeah, the data cookbook that it's free online. I read through a couple pages, a lot of pages, some find some nice recipes there too. Uh, really helped me think of like data ops. And I started a meetup just from reading the content you guys posted about data ops. And I think it's starting to become more mainstream. I haven't seen job postings looking for data ops developer yet, but I think that's that'll probably be coming soon. Yeah, there are. I actually, I've checked it for years, and there's more and more people who have data ops in their, you know, as as in their in their resume or in their their title. So um, it is, a, and the, the people are using the term more, and it's getting, you know, like any term in tech, it's getting a little fashionable. Uh, people are using it and perhaps abusing it. And at the engineering me, we've really tried to kind of di tightly define what data ops is and and, and isn't. Like we don't. You know, in order to do analytics, you do data integration and ETL or ELT. Um, you do data visualization and reporting. You do data science models. You, you do a catalog. And, you know, we've said those things are all great, but that is what a data ops system acts upon. Um, and so to, you, you use your current tools to do data ops, but it's more of a people and process methodology than it is a replacement for any of the stuff that you currently have. And, uh, but, you know, and, and also people, the way, you know, it's just trying to make change, some change happen in the world. And for, there's too many people out there who work in companies where, you know, they are, they really aren't having a great time because of the, the challenges inherent in, in, in data. And I think if there's i I'm just tired of, you know, I, I've spoken about data ops quite a bit. And after every time, I speak, someone comes in, comes up and, and says, starts to sort of tell me their tale of woe about how it sucks and errors and slowness and people don't understand data. And it is really, it's hard to hear that, that how people are, um, are challenged. And I just don't think the way to do that is to, you know, it, it, the answer isn't a faster database or a, a more accurate algorithm. Those things can help a little, but the real answer is in rethinking the, the way that you work and, and the way that your team works. Yeah, putting a lot of press on data scientists to do everything. People say, oh, I have a data science. I can now get all everything I need. But it definitely doesn't start there. You need more of a disciplined approach, and you need to have the right type of developers and people in place to facilitate that process. Yeah, and, and, and a, a good data scientist, you know, talented people are really hard, right, to find. And people who could do everything in analytics from talk to a business customer to understand the data to integrate it to visualize it to create models on top of it they're actually very rare to find that um, and I often find they're easily bored so if you do find one they um, want to go on to the next thing because they're more um, you know and and so really it's all those jobs to be done and how you're kind of figuring out what to do to satisfy your customer with insight um, are, are really broken up into teams and some people have are more visual, some people more on the business side, some people are more on the data side or algorithm side. And how you get all those teams to work together is actually really important um, because uh, you just can't hire enough her heroes and there's just not enough people like that who are sort of full stack to, to hire. Um, and it's kind of a, a myth almost. And it's sort of like the, and the software industry went through this for, you know, in the, uh, the sort of hero Java software engineer in the first internet boom. 
they were, you know, they were hard to hire and everyone said, oh, you just got to hire some geniuses and they'll figure it out. And it just doesn't work. You, there aren't enough geniuses to go around. And in fact, geniuses kind of end up mucking stuff up because they, they build a lot of stuff and they create what's called technical debt. They focus on getting the feature done instead of building a system to support the building of features. Um, and, and I mean features in the broadest sense, not just data features, but, but anything. And that's the other perspective of, of data ops is really more about the machine that makes the machine than it is about the results. So um, if you can build a system that allows people to create quickly and know that it's going to work in production and then get feedback on whether people are using it or whether it's breaking, you can um, have more people create and get more insight out for less work because it's, and in fact, I, I, you know, what the software industry has found is some of the smartest people who work are not working on the machine itself. They're not working on the UI or the database or the backend algorithms. They're actually working on the systems to make sure that that all works, to deliver it and monitor it. And so your smartest people, they're trying to enable other people to do good work. And I think that's something that um, the sort of operational side, the factory that builds the machine is, is sort of that focus is, I think, not, not there in, in a lot of data and analytic teams, how you deploy, how you monitor in production, how you test. They're kind of like afterthoughts or maybe they're done by like lesser people and all the cool people are doing the, you know, the cool people are the data scientists doing the next algorithm. And it's just sort of very similar to what happened in software that, where the cool people were all doing Java in 1999. And then, you know, you go forward 10, 10, 12 years and all the cool people were doing DevOps and trying to be DevOps engineers. And that's why now in software, a DevOps engineer is paid um, and sometimes more than your average person who's developing software because that, that building a system where people can deliver value faster is, is seen as highly important as opposed to just a single person who can deliver value faster. Yeah, it's like uh, automation is the answer to everything, but you still need a person to make those hard decisions and to ensure that everyone's being communicated with, right? Yeah, well, and, and automation takes work. It does, there's no magic. Someone's got to build the automation. And, and how, how much you automate, you know, everyone's got a place they develop and everyone's got a place where people use it. They've got a development and production and how you move work from development to production and automate it and make sure that when you're doing something in development, it actually works in production and doesn't break everything else. Um, and can you, the degree at which you automate that actually means that you can hire people right out of college and right out of college, they can make a change to your complicated thing and then deploy it to production and be successful. And um, most good software companies actually benchmark how fast can you get a new developer in and how fast can they fix a bug and deploy to production. And like for our code, we try to hire somebody and if they haven't um, been able to deploy a bug to production in their first week, that's, you know, that's probably not good. Um, and I don't know many data and analytic organizations who do that. If they're saying, okay, you're going to be able to go, um, how fast can your data engineer deploy to production? Some companies, it's six months to deploy 20 lines of SQL um, from a dev box into production. And that's just, that's just too slow. That's not the speed at which we need to, we need to work. Yeah, definitely in this environment, like onboarding, getting new people up to speed. And if you can do that within a week, like that's, I don't know many people that can do that. So that's definitely something to strive for. 
Yeah, because it's partly it's like, what is a how do you build a development environment? How automated can you get people to all the tools and data that they need to, to do work? And then once they do the work, can they actually see if the change they made affects anyone else? Like, uh, you know, people, it's nice to have meetings and collaborating and, you know, I'm all, I'm all for meetings, but I'm also know my technical people and we don't like meetings that much. In fact, we much prefer a button. And, you know, I think everyone needs the button. If I made this change, if I, I want to press a button and see what else I'm going to break because of it. Uh, and, you know, that's the stuff that came before me and the stuff that came after me. And I think that button is what we're trying to achieve with data ops. The, what am I going to screw up if I put this in the production button so I can fix it? And because uh, that's really collaboration because a lot of times in bigger companies, you know, what comes before you in the value of delivering analytics and what comes after is really unclear because if you are a data scientist putting perhaps a segmentation model into production, um, you know, you've got people working in another part of the company on the database and, another, and, and then perhaps in people in the, another part of the company on the UI and maybe a, a third group who's uh, uh, doing reports off that. And so how do you know if I put this column in or I change the meaning of this column, what's the effect of that on my local change in the, in the global world of, of, and these value chains are really pretty complicated in, in bigger companies. It's not just sort of one or two people putting data together and visualizing. You've got a data warehouse team and a data science team, and then you've got all these amazing self-service tools like Altrix and Trifacta and Tableau, where people can do a, an amazing amount of stuff just on their desktop. But at some point, you know, the customer is the end of that sort of chain of value. And how do you make, how do you know that if I make a change in the middle, I haven't broken any of the other pieces. And I just don't think sort of meetings and technical review boards are, are the way to go. They're just, they're just sort of painfully slow and, and just not fun to sit through. Yeah, um, totally. And one of the things that we've asked um, people who come on our podcast is like what tool or technology you would ideally need or like to have that doesn't exist yet that could kind of close the gap in that pipeline. But I'd also open it to you as well, just based on our conversation so far, there's a type of person or process that might also help to close that gap with an organization? So I think it's a focus thing. So what I'd like people to do is, is focus, don't focus on the next visualization or the next model or the next data set. Instead, focus on the system that, that can do that and try to have the attributes of that system be one where they can have a, where they can decrease the cycle time at which they can get something from the brain of their data scientist, data engineer into the, hands of a, in, into the hands of a customer who can give feedback on it. And the cycle at which you can go from the brain of your creative person to the person who's gonna receive the value. Um, and, and automating that and making that as easy as possible is, is that cycle time is really important. And then second is I want people to think of all these pipelines they have in the organization as big factories. And so, like a factory, you've got suppliers and you've got customers on that factory. And, and in production, you want to strive to have low errors. You want to think of yourself like a Toyota assembly line or a set of Toyota assembly lines. So cycle time and error rates are really important. And then also, I think collaboration, you know, just between your developers and production, right, between the people who build the pipelines and maybe the people who run the pipelines, or between the myriad groups who build the pipelines across the organization, inter and intra-team collaboration are important. And then finally, I'm, you know, I'm continually surprised at how 
unanalytic analytic teams are about the work that they do. You need to measure um, your errors, you need to measure your cycle time, you need to measure the code commits and the productivity of your team. And so, um, you know, the, the, I think the, the focus is more, should be less on do I have, you know, is it, do I, it's less about the next algorithm, the cool new database query, the faster new service on AWS, and more about cycle time and error rates and collaboration and, and process measurement. And that is the mental focus that I think can unlock people to um, look at what they do in a different way. Um, and so if that is very process focused and you know, we built a software tool that instantiates that process, but you don't have to use our software tool. Like for instance, just error rates. Like when I, in 2006, we were having, my previous company, we were having lots of problems in production. I was getting calls all the time. And I just did a spreadsheet and I wrote down every error every time we had one and it filled up quickly. And so every two or three weeks, we'd sit down, people who worked, developed it, people who ran it, and we'd look across the errors and find patterns. And then we'd say, every two weeks, let's have a improvement program. It's just one thing that we can fix to reduce our error rates. And you know what? Over time, you see patterns and you can reduce errors. And so that is something that's free, something that everyone's got a spreadsheet. And also everyone can appreciate because if you can take out the shame of having problems and replace it with a opportunity for improvement idea that this, you know, it's, it's okay. Problems are part of it. You know, what really matters is our reaction to the problem. That's that way of uh, kind of a continuous improvement culture, I think, is free. Um, and it doesn't take any work to count your errors. <laughs> and uh, I'm, again, continually amazed at how many people who, um, you know, think of themselves as really awesome data scientists and data engineers just don't have any idea of whether the data that they're producing is right or how many problems they have. They wait for their customers to call them. That's their form of quality control. Yeah, this is pretty much sounds like we need to kind of get rid of fear. It seems like fear kind of holds some people back at prison production or getting results and kind of hiding it away until that customer calls. I think getting rid of that, that fear. Is yeah, I think it's getting rid of fear and heroism. I mean, neither of those things are particularly bad, right? I mean, it, there are certain cases where fear is useful and certain cases where heroism is useful. But like there, you don't want to be on either side of the barbell. Like you want to have some fear, but most of the time you want to know if something that you do is going to work. And if you, if, if you make a change, is it going to work in production? You want to know that ahead of time and not sort of have fear that it's going to broke or on the inverse, just hope it's going to work and, you know, uh, be done. And so, uh, well, fear and heroism are, are, are nice emotions, but I think we just need a lot less of them. And, and I think when you, when you have that, you actually free people to create more. And the teams who can deliver to production faster, who can have a high safety and a safety culture, um, actually end up being much more productive and they maximize the amount of valuable work that they do. Because at the end of the day, delivering insight out of data is kind of a random walk. Um, you know, we don't particularly know what our customers want. And so we need to get feedback from them quicker and put something in front of them to see and touch. And uh, it may be fun to go off for three or four months to build a new 
a new X, a new database, a new visualization, a new architecture. It's more important to get feedback than uh, along the way to help maximize, you know, maximize your ability to do work that you don't, maximize your ability not to have to do work that you didn't have to do in the first place. Um, and it's nice as, as an engineer, I sort of, I don't mind actually going off for a couple months and building something by myself, but I've learned that, you know, that, that ends up, I usually end up getting major things wrong and I better, uh, I better early on get some feedback from, from my customer to make sure it's right. And I think in the state of diverse report, when they talk about that, you know, time it takes to get to production, it's not just the stability of your system that depends on that, but it's also like the happiness of your employees. Like you want to be able to see that what you produce creates value for the business, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I think that really matters, like the happiness of your team. And, and I think happiness comes from not the fulfillment of some abstract set of steps that you have to do to, you know, I'm, I'm the third part of a 10 part process. And in order to do my third part, I've got these 27 steps I've got to follow and then I'm done. And that's not success. Success means your customer is using it and they like it and it's had a change in the world. That's what success is. And I think people are happier when they see that. Um, and if you can really get feedback from your customer and you start learning more about what they want, um, and you can work in a small, perhaps a more collaborative way. It gives people more opportunity to learn. Teams are happier. They're more self-driven. And I think a lot of, you know, there's, you get rid of command and control and start to liberate people to try new things in a more frequent way and learn. And I think there just ends up being higher functioning teams. And so, uh, I, you know, that's, to me, I think the, you know, uh, you know autonomy and, empower and empowerment and having, you know, people understand the impact of their work. Those things are really good predictors of, of happiness and work. And I think that um, in order to do that in a data and analytics context, I think short cycle time development, following data, data ops principles, I think is the way to go. Yeah, that feeling of contribution, uh, data ops is happiness. So that, that really, <laughs> that's the name of the episode, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it sounds weird, right? Um, but the fact is I was unhappy for many years because I felt that I couldn't do right at leading a team. I was always producing. I would dread going in the morning and getting an email saying, oh, the data's wrong. And my heart would sink. And I'd be like, oh, man, I'm going to get calls. I'm going to have to make a call. Um, or I would you know, dread going to customers when they were hoping we'd do 10 things and we could only do two. And so that sense of dread and like not being, not feeling empowered, um, I think is, is something that I think the idea of data ops, it's, it's not happiness. I think it's more empowerment or more taking back power that you, that you've given up because you haven't, um, you're kind of all focused on, oh, I got to get the next feature done or I'm going to yell that. And then you build up a bunch of technical data and then you're just, you know, you, you are unhappy. And so if you can, uh, I, I see data ops as more of an empowerment idea that empowering people to sort of take back control of how they produce uh, insight um, in a way that allows them to have higher job happiness and deliver more results to the, the company. I think that, that that's perfect summarization. Uh, Victoria, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I don't think so. I think we had a really good conversation. Is there anything else uh, you wanted to, any closing thoughts you wanted to share, Chris? Um, well, I think uh, in terms of, I think they, I think data and analytics is at a kind of interesting inflection point because it's gotten a lot of, it's grown 
up in the past 15 years and gotten a lot of press and publicity. And, and recently it's gotten negative publicity about the uses of data. And so I, I, I would encourage people to kind of be part of the solution and not only resolving some of the ethical challenges in, in data, but some of these process challenges as well. And I think we can, it is a really good field to be in. It has a lot of really fun and interesting people, but I think we're in, a, in for the next five years and in, in an interesting phase where it's the sort of, we're actually really having to make things productive um, and we're having to really, you know, make sure that we do things in an ethically and right way. And I think that's an interesting, uh, in the next five or 10 years, I think that's really interesting for people to, to be part of. Yeah, I love that you mentioned doing it ethically in the right way too, because you, you're certainly seeing the adoption of some of these data science tools by a lot of government agencies, and it has very real world impacts for people who are on the receiving end of it. So, well, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming out. Uh, Banjo, do you have any other? Uh, no, any any events, Chris? Yeah, I know you guys do webinars. Any Anyone do you want to plug? <laughs> no, we're kind of, we stopped. Well, we tried to do events, but yeah, I'm going to be... Um, we have one of our customers uh, doing a webinar in a few weeks. I'm going to be speaking at the DevOps Enterprise Summit um, with uh, one of my, uh, a guy named Gene Kim, who was kind of, he's sort of, in my mind, one of the fathers of DevOps. And so um, uh, I'll be, I'll be speaking there and uh, yeah, and we're, we're continually just trying to, to get content out and talk about data ops. That's awesome. I want to, I want to link to that event. <laughs> yeah, actually it's, it really is to learn. There's a lot of the stuff I say is I'm just aping Gene Kim. So I'm just saying, I'm just applying it to a different domain. And so yeah. there's a lot like his book, the unicorn project is really good. And I, I worked with them last year to sort of help uh, on one chapter in it to talk about, uh, uh, you know, how you can apply these principles to, to data, but uh, the Phoenix project, the unicorn project, there's a lot of good books that they've published. Uh, Accelerate is another good book. And I think the, you know, in a lot of ways, those ideas, he, he admits that they come from manufacturing. And so I, I just think, you know, there's a, we're, we're people who work on a technically complicated thing like software or analytics or a factory and how you manage and your attitude towards change. And I think really is invariant across all those types of technically complicated things. Yeah, totally. Uh, and we also have a Women Who Code event on Wednesday that's uh, working with databases and containers. So a very, very DevOps and data intersection type of Oh, event. awesome. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yep. What about you, Banjo? Do you have any events you're planning? Uh, there's some DevOps um, meetups soon that, you, that I was going to... Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, the June 11th is the I-95 Corridor Regional Day of DevOps. So it's all of the DevOps that are kind of from, I think as far as the Carolinas all the way up to Boston, um, getting together and doing a full day of meetups especially since a lot of the local, I think the DevOps Days um, series of conferences has been really like instrumental in get this whole DevOps movement. And a lot of them were canceled this year, obviously for COVID-19. Um, so it's one way that, that the organizers can all get together and celebrate and, and see each other online um, and talk about DevOps all day long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think there's like a real opportunity for people who know DevOps to, you know, kind of walk across the corridor, so to speak, and, and work with the data and analytic teams because the principles are the same. And, uh, you know, maybe it's not software or a, a server, but it is, you know, it's, it's a database and a model. And I, you know, I think that's a really, uh, because it's funny when I talk to people who have a Dev DevOps background, they, they sort of get it like within three seconds. I say, oh, we're doing DevOps and we're applying all the same ideas to, uh, 
um, data science and engineering. And they, they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then they say, oh, we're not doing that already? <laughs> like, well, no. Yeah. <laughs> We've had like database administrators come to the DevOps DC meetup and be like, oh, we need this for data. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, and it's weird, like people who do, you know, software and, and digital, like we, you know, you took a left turn after you went in undergraduate, you, you did that, or you took a right turn and you went into data and analytics and we're the same people have the same background. It's just, they're just different. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming out and spending time with us this afternoon. All right. Well, thank you much. Thanks for the opportunity and, and best luck to you. All right. Good night. <laughs>